right. Will you open a Bible with me? Romans chapter 9 this morning. Romans chapter 9. If you did not bring a Bible, you'll see one of the chair Bibles in front of you underneath the chair. It is page 550. Page 550 in that Bible. We are looking at Romans chapter 9 this morning. Romans chapter 9. And um, let me just say this at the outset. So as we come to God's Word, um, and I've said this to you before, I've shared this with you before, so the Bible, and I know this is like a really big Bible, um, this Bible actually only comes out on Sunday mornings, um, it's not that I don't read the Bible between Sunday to Sunday, but this specific Bible has a specific purpose, and so I use this one on Sunday, so um, I don't tote this thing around typically, um, but anyway, so the Bible, um, what I just said wasn't a part of what I was going to say, I just said it, um, that happens sometimes, but the Bible is God's work. So when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about God's revelation of himself to us. So that's what the Bible is. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. So God has revealed himself in what we call the pages of Scripture. So from Genesis to Revelation, we discover the truth about God, we discover the truth about ourselves, we discover the truth about the world, we understand right from wrong, we see God's plan of salvation, God's plan of bringing spiritual rescue to those who are lost. And according to Romans, which we've been studying, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every person is in spiritual trouble because of sin, but we celebrate the good news that the Bible proclaims, and that is salvation in Jesus. So when we look at the Bible, the revelation that God has given to us, so there's 39 books in the Old Testament, and there's 27 books in the New Testament for a grand total of 66 books. This is God's revelation to us. It tells us the truth. The Bible is God's word, and it is entirely true. Everything God's word affirms as truth is, in fact, truth. Amen? Now, that does not mean that my understanding of, or your understanding of God's Word is entirely accurate, right? Because, I mean, we can be wrong about things, can't we? God's Word is inerrant. God's Word is without fault. That doesn't mean our understanding of it is without error or without fault, right? So we continue to study. We continue to learn. We continue to open the Scripture together and to be taught and, and I mean, look, I, I, I hope I have a right understanding of God's word. I think I have a right understanding of God's word, but, but I still have plenty of room for growth and plenty of room for learning. So we come to Romans chapter nine, right? We've been in Romans for a while now. We did take a break, but we've come back to Romans nine. We've been back in Romans nine for several weeks now. And we come to Romans chapter, we'll be in Romans, but now we're coming into chapter nine. And as we come to chapter nine, we might have some questions, we might question, well, is this text referring to individual salvation? Is this text teaching that God chooses some but not others? And you might even ask the question, well, is that even fair? You might say, well, what about John 3.16? What does John 3.16 tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Tony Merida, in his commentary, Exalting Jesus in Romans, he writes this. After shouting, yeah, at the end of Romans 8, some readers react to Romans 9 with, say what? 
I mean, let's just think about what Romans 8 taught us. Well, Romans 8 opened up by telling us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's incredibly good news. Right? When Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that means we stand before God, we stand before God declared righteous. That means we stand before God forgiven. That means we stand before God saved. That means we stand before God and, and God is not going to, 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 to hold us to account for our sins, at least not in the sense of, hey, you're going to hell. Yes, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's, that's something Paul does teach us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So as believers, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But that judgment is not for salvation or loss of salvation. No, Paul is clear. There is therefore no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. So this morning, here's the good news for you. If you have acknowledged Jesus Christ as God's son, you believe that he died on a cross for your sins. You believe that God raised him from the dead. You have turned from your sin and in faith you've turned to Jesus. There is no condemnation for you because you're in Christ Jesus. That's incredibly good news. And Paul then ends the eighth chapter by saying, look, there's nothing. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus, right? Death can't do it. Life can't do it. Not height, not depth, nothing in the present, nothing in the future. He says there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's really good news. That's really good news. So again, let me, let me share with you this quote from Tony Morita. After shouting, yeah! At the end of Romans 8, some readers react to Romans 9 with, say what? He further writes this, if you study only chapter 9, you may be tempted to think everything is up to God and we have nothing to do. As the focus is on God's sovereignty, election, choosing, and outworking of his purposes in history. But if you study only chapter 10, you will be tempted to believe everything is up to you as the focus is on human responsibility, the necessity of believing, and the urgency of evangelism. Then in chapter 11, Paul puts both God's sovereignty and human responsibility together, end quote. Again, that's from Tony Morita. Now, we're going to work through the entirety of Paul's letter to the Romans, right? So we're going, to, we're going to continue working all the way through chapter 16. This morning, though, our focus is on this ninth chapter. So I hope you have your Bible open with me, Romans chapter 9. We're going to read a pretty large amount of text, so hang with me. Don't check out. Don't walk out, don't fall asleep. This is God's word, Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. 
As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, your revelation of your truth. We pray, God, that you'd help us to give our attention to your word right now. I pray that you'd help us to understand it. I pray, God, that you would encourage us. And God, whatever we're facing today, whatever we're dealing with, God, I pray that you'd help us to know that your word and your presence is more than enough to help us. Lord, I I pray for your help now. May you teach us. And God, I pray through the proclamation of your word that, God, you would accomplish your purpose among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me just remind us where we've already been. So last week we looked at just these first five verses of this ninth chapter. And so this morning we're looking at a a larger amount of text. But in the first five verses, Paul, he reveals his heart. He really lays out his heart and he and he, and he wants his audience to understand that he desires the salvation of his fellow Israelites. He desires that, that they would come to know what he himself has come to know. Like he wants them to know the incredible truth about Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul met Jesus. And we talked about this last week on, his road to, on the road to Damascus to persecute believers. He met Jesus. His life was never the same. But he's revealed his heart and and, and he shared all these benefits, all of these advantages that that the Israelites had. And yet those advantages did not result in them being automatically saved. Paul's revealed his heart in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Paul reveals that that, that his his heart's desire and his prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. 
the reality is not all of Paul's fellow Israelites are saved. Not all of them are a part of the people of God. Not all of them are in Christ. Well, well why is this? Is there a problem with, with God's Word? Is there a deficiency in God's Word? Well, of course there's not. In fact, notice verse 6. Paul says, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. The, the Word of God does not fail. The, the Word of God accomplishes the purpose for which God sends forth His Word. So Paul says here, right here at verse 6, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. God's Word doesn't fail. In fact, God's Word accomplishes exactly what God intends for His Word to accomplish. Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah verse, chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, Isaiah says, as the sun and the rain, or I'm sorry, not sun, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return from there, or do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So there's an illustration he's using. So he's, he's pointing to something that happens in the natural world. Right? So, so what's happening in the natural world? Well, the rain and the snow come down. And what do they do? They water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, which then gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So then it says, so shall my word be, that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word accomplishes God's purpose. God will accomplish whatever his purpose is through his word that he sends out. So God's word doesn't fail. It hasn't failed in the past. God's word, God's word is not going to fail in the present. God's word will not fail in the future. God's word cannot fail fail God's word is effective in fact Paul told Timothy all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness the writer of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart so there is no fault in God's word so the reason there are Jews who are unsaved. The reason that not all Israelites are included in the people of God is not the fault of God's Word. Here's, here's a big idea for us this morning. A big idea God chooses. God chooses. I, I was reading this text with my family not too long ago. Um, we, we were reading through this text and, and I, I was asking my family and, and I, I don't remember exactly how the conversation went, but I, I, I wanted to hear from them. Um, I knew this sermon was coming up and um, I, I just like, well, what does this mean? Like, what, what, what is Paul communicating here? And, and one of my kids uh, gave me a, a pretty good answer. And I, and I thought, well, that, that'd be a good sermon title. Um, and in fact, I texted him because I wanted to remember what he said. This was later. I sent him a text. He was at school. He answered me. I guess it was okay. But he, he, he responded back to me. And, and, and he just, it was just three words he gave me. It's God's choice. I was like, that, that's the sermon title, right? It's God's choice. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, you may see a little heading. In my ESV Bible, the, the, the translation I'm reading from, the English Standard Version, there, there's a little heading there. And by the way, these headings are not a part of the 
autographic text or the original text, all right? These are added to just help us to understand what's the theme of that section of, of God's Word. Well, the, the heading for Romans chapter 9 is God's sovereign choice. So what Paul is talking about here is, is, is God's choice, right? And, and I think that my son Noah nailed it. It's God's choice, When we look at what Paul is talking about here in this chapter, Paul is very clear to speak of God's election or God's selection or God's choosing. So I want you to follow with me in this text. Now, I'm going to warn you, maybe some of this is going to feel a little uncomfortable to you because maybe it's going to challenge some of your ideas about how God works. But but listen, let's just look to God's word and let's let God speak to us through his word. So we see elsewhere in Scripture the sovereignty of God in bringing people to believe in Jesus. In fact, Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians and and he he opens it by, by praising God. Here's what he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul opens and he says, Praise be to God or blessed be the God. And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then He says, Ephesians 1 verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In John chapter 6, the Jews are grumbling against Jesus because Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if you continue to read there in John chapter 6, Jesus says something. And if you want to know what he says, just read it. It's in John chapter 6. Jesus teaches something that's difficult for people to understand or, or, or let's say it's difficult for them to receive it or to accept it. And so some people have an issue with it. Well, then Jesus says, John chapter 6, verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Paul has already taught right here in Romans chapter 8. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God chooses, but let me, let me add some more specificity to it. God chooses his people. God chooses his people. Physical descent is not sufficient to be included in the people of God. Paul gives us an example, Isaac. Notice with me the second part of verse 6 and into verse 7. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, notice the statements he makes here. He says, first of all, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then he says, verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, 
you could be a, uh, a descendant or you could be within the, the nation of Israel. Uh, you could be a physical descendant of the patriarch Abraham, the one God made a covenant with in the book of Genesis. But what Paul is here saying to us is, and these are my own words, but what Paul is saying is physical descent is not sufficient for inclusion in the people of God. The point here is that you're not automatically considered a part of the people of God because of your physical lineage. Now, there's a quotation here from Genesis 21, by the way, and you're going to see this as we, as we work through this text. Um, and, and if your Bible is not open, this is like, you really need to have your Bible open because we're, we're just walking through this text here, okay? So, you're going to see there's a number of references to the Old Testament here, right? There's either quotations to the Old Testament or allusions to the Old Testament story. Well, Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, let me give a little bit of context of what's happening here. So, so Sarah... Abraham's wife was barren. She wasn't able to have kids. And so Sarah took her servant Hagar and gave her to Abraham. And Abraham and Hagar had a child named Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the son of the promise. This was not the promised son that God had promised Abraham. Because God promised Abraham that he was going to have a son. Well, God works in an incredible way, and God causes a very old Abraham and a very old Sarah to have a child. And that child's name was Isaac. And after Isaac is born, there's a period of time that passes. Well, Sarah wants Hagar and Ishmael to be cast out. Abraham is not happy about this. I mean, I'm not sure all that went into that, but he wasn't happy about this. I mean, Ishmael was his son. But Sarah wants Hagar and Ishmael to be cast out. Here's what the Lord says to Abraham. Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So this is what Paul quotes here in Romans chapter 9 verse 7. So through Isaac shall Abraham's offspring be named. So get this point here. Isaac was chosen, not Ishmael. Notice verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. So it's not physical descent, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. And this is, a, this is found in Genesis 18, verse 10. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So when Paul says, back here at verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then at verse 7, not all who are children of Abraham are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. He first gives the example of Isaac being chosen, not Ishmael. But now he gives the example of Jacob. Notice verses 10 and following. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. So, Abraham, and from Abraham came Isaac, and then Isaac marries Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah have children. Rebekah has twins in her womb. And Paul is saying here that before they had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 25, beginning with verse 21, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So Rebekah was unable to have children. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So what do we see here? God chose the one over the other. He chose Jacob instead of Esau. And if you notice what Paul says here at chapter 9, verse 13, he references the scripture from Malachi chapter 1 in which the Lord says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. So here we see two examples of God's choosing of persons. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. God chooses to have mercy on some and to harden others. Now, your question might be, well, hang on a second. Why would God choose one over the other? Why, why, why choose Isaac over Ishmael? Why choose Jacob over Esau? Is that fair? Well, notice verse 14. Paul anticipates this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, the translation I'm reading from gives a very emphatic answer to that question. Is there injustice on God's part? It says, by no means. Right? God is not unjust. Right? It was not unjust for God to choose Isaac over Ishmael. It was not unjust for God to choose Jacob over Esau. That was not unjust. In fact, nothing God does is ever unjust. Other translations, the NIV says, not at all in answer to the question. The Christian Standard Bible says, absolutely not. The New Living Translation says, of course not. It's an emphatic denial. God is not unjust. Notice what he says at verse 15. For he says to Moses, and this is coming from Exodus 33 verse 19. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God chooses who he's going to have mercy on. God chooses who he's going to have compassion on. Verses 16 and 17, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So in other words, the recipients of mercy 
those who receive God's compassion, it is not because of their effort, it's not because of their own doing, but rather it is because of God's decision. So God's mercy is extended to people, not on the basis of what they've done, but rather is extended to people on the basis of what God decides to do. And to give an example, look at verse 17. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, this takes us to the Old Testament book of Exodus. So God's people are in Egypt. They're in Egypt they're enslaved to Pharaoh. You say you may want to say, well, why did, how did they get in Egypt? How did God's people get to Egypt? Well, read the book of Genesis. Re- read the story of Joseph. It'll, it'll tell you about why God's people ended up in Egypt. Well, while they were in Egypt, they became very numerous. They were multiplying. God was, was, was blessing them. Well, there was a new Pharaoh who came to power who didn't remember Joseph, who didn't know Joseph, and, and this Pharaoh, this king, sees how populous the, 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 the people of Israel are. And so he decides to enslave them and to force them to engage in hard labor. And God's people are crying out and God sees the, 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 the difficulty that they're in. God remembers his covenant with them and God brings Moses to be their deliverer. So God sends Moses to Pharaoh to say to him, let my people go well here's what the lord says to moses before moses goes before pharaoh here's what he says it's exodus chapter 4 verse 21 when you go back to egypt see that you do before pharaoh all the miracles that i have put in your power but i will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go The Lord also tells Moses, Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So listen to what God is saying to Moses. God is saying to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will not let the people go. Prior to the seventh plague, I mean, God unleashed plague after plague after plague on the Egyptians, and yet Pharaoh said, no, you can't go. Well, prior to the seventh plague that the Lord unleashed on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the Lord instructed Moses, he said this to him. This is Exodus chapter 9, beginning with verse 13. Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. And this is it. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's what Paul references here in chapter 9. God says, I raised you up for this purpose. To show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then after Israel leaves Egypt, before they cross the Red Sea, the Lord says this to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. 
For Pharaoh will say to the people of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. That's Exodus chapter 14. So back to Paul in Romans chapter 9. After giving this example of God and his actions with Pharaoh, Chapter 9, verse 18, Paul says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God chooses to have mercy on some and to harden others. And so, here's the question. And it might be the big question in your mind right now. Okay, if this is true, God chooses, God chooses his people, God chooses to have mercy on some and to harden others. Okay, if all of this is true, then here's the big question. Paul anticipates it. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, if this is really how God acts, if God chooses one over the other, if God chooses Isaac and not Ishmael, if God chooses Jacob and not Esau, if God hardens Pharaoh, If God chooses to have mercy on some and to harden others, then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Well, look at Paul's answer at verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, who are we creatures to question the one who created us we are finite beings with finite understanding god is infinite how can we say to the one who created us why did you make such choices just think about this for a moment the the god revealed to us in the bible the god of the bible is a triune god what does that mean that means god is three persons he is father he is son he is holy spirit god the father god the son god the holy spirit the god of the bible is a god who existed prior to genesis chapter 1 verse 1 which teaches us in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth so so the god of the bible the god revealed from genesis to revelation the god who's revealed himself in the pages of scripture is eternal he is without beginning of days he is without end of days He has never not existed. Every last one of us are temporal beings. Right? I've been around for 39 years and some number of days. You've been around for some amount of time. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You have only been around for a very short period of time. Every single human being that has ever lived, their their time is is finite. We're creatures. God is infinite. Our understanding is limited. Our capacity to to grasp what is right, what is wrong, it's limited. And God is infinite. He is eternal. He's never not existed. He just simply spoke. He just simply willed it. And the world came into being. And so Paul says to those who would question God's sovereign choice to have mercy on some while hardening others, Paul says, who are you, a creature, to 
talk back to God, to question God. And here's something we need to get a hold of. God has the right to do whatever he does. I don't have the right to do whatever I do. And you don't have the right to do whatever you do. But if there's anyone who has the right to do whatever he does, it is the God who is responsible for everything that exists. I'm not going to stand up on this platform and try to explain to you why God does everything he does, because I don't know. In fact, when we come to a text like this, we, we, we may scratch our heads a little bit. We may, we may be like Tony Marita and say, say what? Because we may look at this and we may say, well, I don't understand that. How does that work? Look, I'm not up here to explain everything that God does, but here's what I can say. God is completely and entirely good. God has the right to do whatever he does, and whatever he does is good, it is right, and it cannot be improved upon. Look what Paul says. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Look at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. In other words, does the potter not have the right with this lump of clay that he's working with? Does the potter not have the right to decide with this lump of clay that he is going to, from this lump, create one vessel for, for one use and another vessel for another use? Does he have the right to do that? Can the potter not decide to create from the same lump of clay one vessel for an honorable purpose and another one for a dishonorable purpose? Can the potter decide that? Of course he can. And Paul continues, he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice Paul mentions vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for glory. Paul refers to God's patient endurance. And so his wrath is, on the one hand, directed against vessels of wrath while his while the riches of his glory is directed toward vessels of mercy. He's patient with vessels of wrath in order to reveal the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy. Now look, I, I'm not going to tell you I understand what all that means because I'm not sure exactly what all that means. But here's, here's what I know. Elsewhere in scripture, the apostle Peter speaks of God's patience. And, and just to kind of give you some understanding... The Apostle Peter, in, in his letter, 2 Peter, the third chapter, evidently there were those who were questioning, well, where's the promise of his coming? Right, where, where's the promise of, of the coming of Jesus? I mean, there's this promise that Jesus is going to come again. Well, what's taken so long? Now, if you read 2 Peter chapter 3, you're not going to see those words. That's just kind of my explanation of it. I mean, Jesus came. And Jesus promised he was coming again, right? And you may say, well, it's been a long time, approximately 2,000 years. That's a long time. But what the apostle Peter wants his audience to understand is, look, you know, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as the day. And, 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 and basically, 
God's way of looking at things isn't the same as our way of looking at things. And here's what Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's not slow. God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to reach repentance. He further writes, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.15, he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So during this interval between the first and the second coming of Jesus, right, during this period of time where the first coming of Jesus is the past and the second coming of Jesus is yet future, during this interval, it is an opportunity for salvation. It is an opportunity for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So God's going to bring judgment and wrath upon unbelievers. But His patience provides the opportunity for salvation for those who will believe. And notice what Paul references here at the end of verse 20, or actually it is verse 24. He says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God has chosen to call both Jews and Gentiles to himself. The salvation that God provides through Jesus is not just for one group. It is for both Jews and for Gentiles. In fact, Paul quotes from the prophet Hosea, verses 25 and 26. You see that? Those who are not my people, I will call my people. So the people of God include Jew and Gentile, whoever believes in Jesus. And then in verses 27 through 29, he references Isaiah the prophet. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them shall be saved. So there are many Israelites, many who, who trace their lineage to Abraham, but not all will be saved. Only those who trust in Jesus will be saved. Salvation is found in him alone. And so I'd like to land it right here with this point. God saves. Salvation is God's doing from beginning to end. God is the one who saves. God is the one who has chosen to place His love upon us. God takes the initiative. John writes, we love because He first loved us. God chose to love us. God chose to send Jesus, not to condemn, but to save. And here's the truth that I know. If you will call upon Jesus today, He will save you. You may say, well, well hang on a second. How, what if I'm not one of the ones He chose? What if I'm not one of the ones He elected? I can't stand up here on the platform and, and tell you that I've got an explanation for how God's sovereignty and human freedom work together and it's just going to blow you away because it's going to be so crystal clear. But here's what I can say to you. And I believe the scriptures are clear on this. If you will call upon Jesus today, if you will call upon Jesus, believing in Him that He died for your sins on a cross, that God raised Him from the dead, if you will call upon Him, turning from your sin and putting your trust in Him, if you will call upon Him today, He will save you. In fact, I don't believe there is any person anywhere existing right now on planet Earth. 
I told you last week, according to that census clock that I found online, there's over 7.7 billion people inhabiting planet Earth right now. If any man, woman, and child among the 7.7 billion plus people existing on planet Earth right now, any one of them who genuinely calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus, believing that He died on a cross for their sins, believing He was raised from the dead, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus, the God of heaven will save. Absolutely. I mean, just your Bible's open, hopefully. Just, just jump over to Romans 10. Jump, jump over to Romans 10 and look at, look at two verses. Look at verses 9 and 10. Well, what does Paul say there? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Well, just look a few verses later. Look at verse 13. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you ask Him to save you, He's not going to say, sorry, buddy, I didn't pick you. Now listen. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm not saying this is like, you just think of this like some kind of like ritual statement of some sort. It's not like a magical spell. It's not like, oh, if I get these words right in this particular order, that's how you do it. No. If you truly have sorry if you're truly sorrowful for your sin you recognize your sinful brokenness before the god of heaven right you, you recognize what paul says at romans 3 23 for all of sin and fall short of the glory of god you recognize what paul says at romans 6 23 for the wages of sin is death and if you put your trust in god's son jesus you believe in him you believe in him that he died for you and he was raised from the dead he will save you Remember, Jesus said, John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't even pray that prayer to the Lord Jesus without the Father drawing you to Jesus. But if the Father draws you to Jesus, and if the Father opens your eyes to the truth of His Son, Jesus, call on Him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Worship team, come on forward. This morning, I, I, I don't know where everybody is spiritually. But I'll tell you this, the infinite God, the God who created you, the God who created me, the God of heaven knows where I am spiritually and He knows where you are spiritually. And this morning, if God has opened your eyes, if God is drawing you to His Son Jesus, will you believe in Him today? Will you trust in Him today? God so loved the world that He gave His, His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Salvation isn't for Jews only, it's for Gentiles. Salvation isn't only for males only, it's for females. Salvation isn't only for adults, it's for children. Salvation isn't just for those in the United States, it's, it's for everyone. 
Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you believe in Jesus today? Or maybe you're this, here this morning and you say, I am a believer in Jesus. I do believe. But you've never taken the step of obedience to be baptized. We've got a beach baptism coming up June 6th. We'd love to be able to baptize you and to join with you as you publicly proclaim your faith in a crucified and risen Savior. And you identify yourself with Him. That your old life is in the past and you're now walking in a new way of life with Jesus. Maybe there's something else going on in your life right now. You're just dealing with some really hard stuff. Life is not easy. Life can be really challenging. If you want to reach out to us, there's a, there's a text number that you can reach out to us. 386-777-1417. Just reach out to us. We'll get right back with you. Somebody of our team will get right back with you. This morning as we, as we sing, let's, let's respond as God leads us. I'll be here at the front. I'll be happy to pray with you. But let's respond as God leads us today.